Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to The Accelerator with Michael Conniff. That's me. Uh, we're a podcast devoted to founders, entrepreneurs, startups, and also angels, VCs, family offices, investment firms. Though we also have a podcast called The Angel now, so we're kind of covering both sides of, uh, of the riverfront. Um, uh, today, we are joined by uh, Brent Barkus. Brent is the uh, co-founder of I-65 Capital Investors, and he uh, handles investment and private equity operations there. And um, welcome, Brent. Great to have you. Thanks, Michael. It's a, it's a joy to be on. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And um, uh, Brent has a uh, an amazing background um, that we're going to get into uh, in both in music uh, and in and in audio engineering, I guess. Is that the right way to describe right. it? Absolutely. Yes. Let, let's start with your let's start with your entrepreneurial streak. OK, yeah. yeah, because, you know, you're very successful. You've been a successful musician, a successful, very successful audio engineer, which is, is going to blow people's mind when we get into it. But um, what why would you kind of embrace um, a real estate company, and we'll talk about exactly what kind, given that you've had a lot of success in your, you know, in your other careers. Absolutely. Oh, I thanks. mean, you've kind of lived the dream. Other people are like, oh, gee, I really like to be a Nashville musician because you're yeah. a Nashville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really like to do, you know, work on movies, but you've actually done those things. So what is the allure of entrepreneurship and real estate for you? Yeah, I, I think, it, you know, the, there's a, you know, well, First off, I think because I grew up around real estate, my dad was a commercial uh, developer, broker, you know, loved mm -hmm. to, he was a very creative entrepreneur, is, or he's retired now, but uh, in St. Louis, Missouri. So I think it's in my blood, the real estate side. Um, and it was always from the creative bent. My dad was very creative and loved to, you know, buy land and, and develop and flip things. And uh, so that was his his whole world and, and his work, work life. Uh, so I think it was passed to me there. And so I've always loved real estate, but I think just the um, musical, you know, part was something I, uh, my brother's a drummer and we grew up in a, a musical household. My parents loved to dance. And so uh, <laughs> from a young age, you know, the, um, you know, I was in the Midwest and just kind of loved, loved music, pop music, radio and top 40. And, um, you know, I was in high school, got in a band, started playing guitar and sports really wasn't something that was, I, I loved sports. I, I didn't ever really feel like I was, you know, totally excelling in high school and needed some an outlet, a creative outlet. So music just kind of stuck. I fell in love with it and uh, practiced all the time and tried to do some school work in between practicing and then ended up <laughs> deciding, to, deciding to come to Nashville and giving it a shot in the early 90s and, and get in the uh, music scene here. All right, we're going to get to that in one second. I'm curious if you, when your dad was doing real estate, is that were you inclined to follow him around and kind of see what he was doing and, and sniff around the edges a little bit? I'd say, yeah, a little bit. I, I was always interested in, um, you know, he would show us land and show us things he was working on. You know, he had a few apartment buildings that he was buying. He, he bought a, a, a apartment building and then converted it to condos. So it was always kind of up up on that and, and how he was doing the conversions and all that. So, yeah, you know, a little bit here and there. I'd drive around with him we, and we'd listen to St. Louis baseball and, and uh, he'd drive around and show me properties. So we were always kind of out and about looking at things. And St. Louis baseball, St. Louis Cardinals baseball is a big deal in the Midwest in part because of, uh, is it KMOX, the radio KMOX. Yep. Yeah, yeah, is this, it goes everywhere. Yeah. Uh, goes all the way to the East Coast and and far West as well, um, like to Iowa, right? Yeah. So, so that, that was your upbringing. Um, 
Now, let's talk a little bit about I-65 capital investments. I-65 is Interstate 65, um, which cuts through Nashville or near Nashville. Yes. And um, what what is what's the investment thesis here? What's the opportunity for you? And what have you what have you done so far? Yes. Well, the, the idea um, uh, and this is just kind of developed in the last three, four or five years is to um, basically I kind of I don't say I stumbled across, but I found out about these uh, uh, groups, investors that are buying larger uh, in, like institutional grade assets, multifamily. And they're syndicating, which means they are pooling money so they can buy into larger opportunities, assets as a group. Uh, so you have your general partners and your LPs, limited partners. And uh, so it's, a, it's an opportunity to invest um, private equity into institutional size and grade um, assets. And all of us basically build a scale with, uh, you know, smaller amounts of money individually. But as a group, we can go buy larger properties. So that's the idea is to basically help source those deals. Uh, get to know brokers, get to know markets that are um, specifically strong with population growth, job growth, where mm -hmm. people are moving. And obviously then um, rentals are in demand and there's rental growth. So, um, you know, great investment opportunities and find those deals and then put together the partnerships and then raise the capital to go in and, and buy those assets. So it's both private equity, but also individual investors? Well, the private equity is specifically, it's either coming from um, specific uh, individual investors or family office. Uh, there's some, a little okay. bit of that. Uh, there's 1031s, there's uh, self-directed IRAs. So there's a lot of different ways the funds are coming mm -hmm. in. How do you find that money? How do you raise that money? What, how, do you, how do you market to that audience? Yeah, that's, it's, it's constant. It's, it's really just a conversation, you know, in, in the, um, anywhere I go, really, it's just something that's kind of a part of my natural, just sharing what I'm doing. And then obviously, as you bring up, oh, I like to invest in real estate. You know, I've been in the music and audio business, but I also love real estate. And well, what are you doing with that? Or how do you invest in that? And so it's more of a conversation and just starting to build a network of people that are looking for alternative things to invest in besides the markets. So it's a it's one on one marketing. It's like you meet Pretty people much. and you try to convince them and, and so on. And um, so these are you, you said multifamily, right? So what would a typical investment property look like? How big would it be? And what were some what are some of the things you look for to kind of uh, to make sure it's going to be successful? Yes, absolutely. Um, with these larger groups, we tend to look at uh, properties that are 100 units or above. So that's typically the minimum because you're looking for an asset that can be operated by a full-time property management. So that's kind of the one thing that you're looking for. So we are would love to be hands-off. Basically, the, uh, the asset managers are, you know, overseeing the business plan, overseeing property management, but there's a, obviously a day-to-day -day, um, property management happening. Um, and then we like the value add um, asset right now, which is like a class B. It might be 10 to 15 to 20 years old. Maybe it's a first gen value add, meaning, um, you know, the developer built it. It's done really well. It's stabilized, but it's kind of ready for the, the new makeover. The first time it's going to be makeover. That's why they say first generation. So it's, you know, it might be cosmetic. It's maybe granite and updating the kitchens and doing flooring. And then you're, you're basically doing that to then um, increase the value of those uh, by raising the rent. So you're increasing the value of the property. So you renovate them, and then I assume you can raise the prices, right? Raising the rents, which obviously is then raising the uh, the net operating income, which is creating the value, the forced appreciation in the property. And then it's okay. usually not, yeah. Go ahead, sorry. No, no, you go, you go. Oh, I was just saying that you know, and then obviously the uh, operators are trying to decide if they want to hold it for a, a three to five year hold, or is it going to be a longer term, a ten year hold, uh, just depending on kind of what the business plan is and how they're uh, you know how they want to operate. 
So what have you done so far? Have you have you have you tried out this model? Yeah. So uh, let's see. Last year was my first was really my heavy boots on the ground looking for, you know, the right group, the right asset. We we closed in November on 200 units in Georgia. It's a class C actually. So it's a little older than a class B property. So mm -hmm. it's a little more of a workforce housing, uh, more of a heavy value add. So we're doing a lot more renovations and uh, getting rid of some delinquency, you know, trying to turn over the the, mm -hmm. the tenants a little bit. And um, so, yeah, that's going really well. We're in the middle of kind of just uh, getting that kind of turned over and we'll start, um, I think, distributions of the quarterly, um, um, you know, the uh, cash flow will start happening in the next month or two. It usually takes about three to six months to kind of get things operating and new property management and get things turned over mm -hmm. where we can start getting that cash flow. So the ca explain how the cash flow works. So so the, the property starts to uh, produce positive cash flow. And um, how do you determine how much to distribute to your share? I guess they're shareholders, right? To right. your partners. Yeah. Yes. And that's all obviously stated up front in the, um, the PPM, which is the private placement memorandum, which is kind of the documents you'll see of, of, at the offering when we're doing webinars or presenting these assets to, to investors. It would say, you know, so let's say it's an 80-20 uh, you know, split. The general partners would take 20. The limited partners would take the 80%. There might be an 8% pref. That happens a lot, which, which means the limited partners who are putting up the bulk of the money are going to get an 8% preferential cash flow before the, the general partners would see their split. So there might be an 8% pref, and then it might be an 80-20 split from there on. And that's how the cash flow happens. I see. So if, so if somebody... Um, uh, what, what what would be the typical size of investment? Uh, these are like uh, fifteen to twenty million dollar. Oh, I mean, for an individual, it, yeah. the minimums are usually like fifty to seventy five thousand. You know, okay. hundred thousand is like a good. You know, would be a, a, a you know anywhere in that range. So, so just just for round numbers, if somebody were to put in a hundred thousand dollars, I think you're suggesting that from after about three to six months, after you kind of get it squared away, there would be positive cash flow. But how how much cash flow might that investor uh, expect in, in the property you've got in Georgia? Yeah, so they're they're typically going to see an eight percent um, cash invest, uh, um, you know, cash flow uh, yearly. Then they're going to see um, the obviously the internal rate of return is usually fifteen to sixteen percent. Mm -hmm. So and then there's like an equity multiple. So the idea is if it's a longer hold, there'll be a refi at like year three. So the idea is to give investors back, you know as much of their return of capital at that three-year part of the refi, and then they all stay in the deal. Sometimes these larger deals, if you get into a REIT or an institutional type thing, they're going to, sometimes they'll kick their investors out of the deal at that refi, and then the general partners will keep the deal. But these are, what I love about these syndications with these uh, pri more private groups are everybody stays in the deal. So you continue your cash flow for as long as we hold the property, but you get your return of capital back at the refi, usually year three. Okay, and and so um, that would indicate that um, uh, that a lot of the purchase price of the property is is debt that you're doing it through a bank. Is that typical? Yeah, usually the debt. Yeah, and obviously, as we all know, with interest rates have have changed, and the game that was has my changed. next question. That was my next. Yeah, question. yeah, yeah. The leverage is different. Uh, you know, a few years ago, there was a lot more uh, bridge. Uh, you know, interest only type uh, debt going on, and all of that's kind of tightened up. So right now you're, we're typically having to, you know, looking to raise more capital on the front end to do any kind of 
of the um, you know capital improvements, some of that is now being raised instead of going with like a bridge and getting your capex capital expenditure money into the actual financing. So mm -hmm. we might go sixty, we might even go sixty-five or a 70 percent debt to the thirty percent equity. Right now is kind of the typical. And um, and and you have partners in this, right? Yes. And and these, these are uh, this is a team sport for sure on these large deals. It's a it's a team. Yeah. yeah. And I know um, you have one of your partners is a is a big holder of these kind of properties. Is that right? Right. Mark Kenny, who I really love, they're called Think Multifamily out of Dallas. They're a, a large one of these real estate investment groups and are very experienced, uh, have been doing this for over 20 years and, uh, you know, 18,000 plus units that they've invested in and operate. And then they uh, so and they have lots of large operators that are part of the group. So they're kind of and what's nice is everyone is kind of all over the the country. So they're kind of looking at deals and, and sharing the deal flow in with the group on a weekly or, or bi-weekly call. And, and what, um, what kind of um, footprint are you looking for in the sense of like, you're in Georgia, is this, uh, are these kind of opportunities, of course, I'm sure they're everywhere, but, but is there a particular place, sector, uh, part of the country where you're, where you're focused? Pretty much, yes. Um, I live in Nashville, Tennessee, which is a really great market right now. It's it's there's a lot of growth and it's a it's a pretty exciting place to be right now. So I t I tend to look, um, you know, obviously you always want to look in kind of your home if it's a growth area. I'm looking here and any of the sub and tertiary markets around Nashville, uh, but Southeast is really the, is the is where there's a lot of migration, obviously from California and up east and everyone kind of moving. So there's Texas, Florida. There's a lot of Georgia going on. Uh, we're always just looking for, you know, mark, great markets where there's job growth and population uh, population growth. So that's kind of what you're you're looking for with, on the stat side of things. Low so crime. Now, now I get to ask you about your amazing other career. Great. Uh, I feel like I paid my dues. Uh, <laughs> I feel like we 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 covered we covered your business. Yeah. Um, which is which is interesting. And but but I, to be honest with you, I think I, I haven't really. This might be the first real estate related uh, interview I've done. And what's interesting is uh, to, what was interesting to me was kind of your path into that. Um, and um, um, I, I, you sent me a, um, your, what is known as your reel, um, which is the, the movies and television shows you worked on. And um, uh, you know, it was, it was jaw dropping. I think my floor, my jaw is still on the floor. It was yeah. it was amazing. It seemed like every every movie, every great movie and TV show I had watched for the last you know <laughs> I don't know five years is on that reel. Uh -huh. um, and and so first of all, I want maybe you could give people a sense of some of the some of the things you've worked on that they may have heard of, and then I wanted to drill down into a, a little bit into that as well. Oh, thank you. Oh gosh, let's see. You know, I am a uh, have my own studio too. I've kind of branded all my companies I sixty five, so you'll hear that in my all my company names. But I have a studio I sixty five Sound, which is a Dolby Atmos uh, immersive studio here. I'm in it actually now. But uh, and so this is where I work in my film and TV side and music side, where I'm mixing a lot, doing sound design, um, and that's includes short form content to longer form movies and documentaries, all kinds of different. Um, uh, lengths of, of content, commercials, everything, and trailers. Um, and so I work with clients, uh, larger brands, uh, creative like Paramount Plus. I do stuff for Hulu and uh, NASCAR and Motor Trend and Volvo and uh, lots of brands. Um, 
you know, it's, 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 it's fun. It's very creative, uh, sometimes kind of intense, but, uh, and it's very detailed work. So there's a lot of hours sitting in the chair. So maybe that's why the real estate uh, is a good uh, balance because I can be out and about and uh, not be kind of glued to the chair. Do you work alone? I do when I mix. Yes. It's a, because I'm very, it's a, you know, it's a, a hypersensitive ear. Um, you know, I have to be kind of in my sweet spot in the studio and, and I like to mix at low volumes. I feel like I get more fine tuned detail of all of the levels of, of what, what I'm mixing when I'm, when it's quieter than when it's a loud environment. Yeah. And, and, um, so I know that, um, I saw the movie 1917 in there. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of yours, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I'm so sorry. There's so much content that it's. I think so. You forget. You really forget. I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's oh, a lot of hilarious. And, and some of it's and sometimes it's deceptive because sometimes it might be. Um, some of it was either fully long form or it was uh, certain cuts of it or it could have no. been a trailer. So you know, there's just so much that comes yeah. my way. So. But 1917, uh, I think it was Sam Mendes, wasn't mm-hmm. it? I think the so. Director? Yes. And you know, it was is it was a really it remains a kind of a, a landmark movie. Because I think maybe there was only one cut in it, um, maybe two, uh, but very few. So what that meant to me was, um, as a as a viewer, was that you know the sound played an even more important role in the continuity and in telling the story. Was that one particularly challenging for you, or particularly fun? You know, I don't. I, I it's funny. I don't. I, there's certain things that don't like just because there there's so much of it kind of happening that I think that it's. I mean, it was. They're, all of them have their own challenges and unique depending on kind of how they're how they're recorded and uh, you know it's it's really just that is again that team that team thing where it's like trying to figure out kind of okay what what's needed here what do I need to what restoration needs to happen and then is there any sound design that needs to happen and then that final mix so I think it's they're all kind of just have their unique challenges and and but and bonuses as well from a creative standpoint so what are the ones that you you said you have a hard time remembering some of them so what a good question would be. What are some of the ones you do remember? What, yeah, what, well, what? recently all fall, I really enjoyed. I just finished uh, last fall. I did a, a docu series with um, for Peacock. Uh, it's on streaming on Peacock. If you want to see it, it's uh, it's called Road uh, Race for the Championship. It was a 10 one hour uh, series uh, on on the story of NASCAR, the history of NASCAR, their drivers in the pits. It was kind of a way to get kind of a younger generation to understand the, the sport and just how these drivers, how they live their lifestyle and how, the, what, what racing is like. So that was, and we, I did that from the ground up with NASCAR and Peacock uh, NBC. So that's been, that was one of my favorites. It's one of the newer ones that I've done. So how about on the movie side, what sticks out for you? Oh gosh. I don't know. The TV think it's hilarious. I think it's hilarious. I mean, I've, done, I've done some of the Yellowstone stuff was really great, you know? Oh really? And some of that was more like, uh, you know, doing stuff for Paramount. I do a lot of short form with them too. So that's intense. Uh, and they had a, they had a show I really loved called 68 whiskey. It's kind of a military show that I don't mm-hmm. think it's, uh, active anymore, but it was really great. I did that a few years ago. I love, so lots of sound design, heavy, you know, machine machinery and guns. And so I'm doing a lot of layering and depth of sound, you know? Yeah. And, and so how did, um, so I think technically is the best description of what you do as sound engineer. They call it re-recording. Well, in the film world, it's called re-recording mixer. So it's kind of the final when all of the pieces come to you. You're like the last element before it goes gets approved and goes to the whether it's the network or the, yeah. the film house. Yeah. So and re-recording wanna, mixer and sound designer. Yeah, and I want to point out that um, 
that if if people are not convinced about how important this is to the final product, um, I think almost every year at the Oscars when they give out the awards um, for the for sound, they will play a clip without the sound. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, yeah. I think actually Steven Spielberg just did this in a tribute to John Williams, the composer. Oh. And he played it without the sound and then with the sound. And of course, it's completely different. Uh, um, yeah. So do you do you start out by just looking at the the images or do you start out? How do you how do you put it all together? Well, you know, a lot of times it depends on what my role is in the project. Like with the NASCAR one, uh, you know, the sound design was so important. and had to be authentic to the NASCAR brand. And that was yeah. made clear to me. So. Thankfully, NASCAR is meticulous about recording all of their original, their sounds. They have a giant library of, you know, all the engines and the the, the recent pits. Really? Wow. Oh, the machines. And and so that has to be authentic because their, their diehard fans know if something is not a quality, sure. one of the real sounds. So I had to get up to speed with them on, hey, I, I'm, I don't, I'm not a huge NASCAR guy, but so I don't really know the authentic sounds of these cars. And I'm the one layering some of, a lot of the sound in. I got to know what's authentic, you know. Yeah. So that's, that takes some time, you know, and so thankfully they, they've, they have such a library, uh, you know, so a lot of these projects, if they've had a past history or if it's a, they've got that library for us, or sometimes I'm the final where there's already a sound designer on, on the team. And so I'm basically getting those elements that are already in, and I'm just deciphering how much of each sound design, you know, piece or the, versus the dialogue and the music. I'm just kind of blending all that and EQing it to make it kind of fit. And do, do you, um, uh, how close do you work with the director on this? Is it is it a case where they kind of throw it all at you um, uh, and then you you just, you bring back what you bring back or? It is, what? yeah. No, these days, most of my work is remote. Um, and I know some of the larger films in, you know, in Hollywood and stuff, there's more on site. But my niche, I would say, since I'm in Nashville is, I'm kind of a remote mixer. So I do a lot of it on my own, do a first pass, they'll say, or maybe I'm doing you know, different segments of the, of the, of the content and then submitting, maybe, you know, I'll do a first, maybe it's the first, you know, hour or 30 minutes, sending that off, moving to the next and then getting a lot, long list of notes and, and, but a lot of direction ahead of time of like what somebody, a director or a producer is going for. And then you kind of, you know, you try to tailor what you're doing towards, Hey, we're, we like more dialogue or we don't, we want the music to be more intense and less, you know, harder to hear the dialogue. So there's always kind of a, getting to know what they're after and trying to find that you know, happy medium. So as a writer, my sweet spot is storytelling. I'm really curious as to how you, what impact you have on the storytelling. I mean, can you find stuff in the mix that maybe nobody actually knew was there or that is just really interesting to you or that gives it a layer or a nuance that wasn't anticipated? Does that happen? Yeah, I think that happens. And that's a lot of it. That's that could be a dynamic ride of something, maybe an intense moment where you're bringing something, you know, some of it's automated. They call it automation where I'm, you know, you're caught, you're creating that um, eagerness or uh, energy by just a, a volume ride at a certain point. Yeah. Or it might be even adding, a, you know, sometimes we'll we have sound libraries. I, I might be adding um, more energy into a, a scene that needs, I feel like it doesn't have enough weight maybe on the sub, the low end thing. It's maybe it's something that needs more intenseness on the bottom end. So we're bringing in, um, you know, more low end on the bottom. So all those kind of things can make impact that you might not see, but you definitely can feel. And, and, and how is that different from when you produce or work on a radio, on a, um, on a, on a record, on a, on a, on a, on a music song? project? 
yeah, yeah like music project. Yeah, totally different. It's a, it's a, it's definitely a shift. Um, and those, you know, that where the the vocal is so important. I, you know, being with my music background, you know, I know that obviously hit songs are driven by the lyric and the the, the vocal. Yeah. So that's always front and center. And then obviously, then everything else kind of just comes and wraps around that. So it's finding that balance of the drums and bass and the the blend of all that band and those elements. So it's just kind of a different. It's all similar, but it's like you know you have to put on your music hat versus the overall mixer hat of a film or tv yeah um so i'm i'm sure you're wondering like how i'm gonna bring this all back to real estate <laughs> no it doesn't have to <laughs> so, so here's, here's my question so and you, there, there may be no answer to this but but you've obviously learned a lot about how to do this how to mix things how to make things work together um are there any lessons learned from this career which is ongoing right you're still doing it yeah. Yeah. Um, with what you're doing in real estate, does it feel like you're, you're, it's all part of the same creative impulse? Does it feel like you've learned some things you can apply now? What's, what's the kind of mental state of mind, um, as you move into this new area? Yeah, I think, uh, the biggest thing is, um, being a team, I think being the team player, you know, everything I've always done, whether it was, um, you know, touring the world with a, an artist, artist like Shania Twain, you know, that everything has been a team sport and, I find that the more that you're willing to play whatever role is, is either not there yet or needed and, uh -huh. and fit that spot, then um, I'm providing value in that situation, you know? And so it could be like, like I said, a sideman on a, a major tour or playing on an album, playing guitar parts or in a film, you know, if it's, I, you know, there's a sound design need or always looking and, and in real estate, you know, like these, like I said, these large multifamily assets, it's a team sport. What value do I provide to the general partnership? Am I, am I bringing capital to the team? Am I helping oversee the property management or the renovation side of it? So looking for what, if that partnership is formed, what what role that I can fulfill to help add value and be a, a team player? And, and I sense that you're not, um, uh, I might be wrong, but I, I sense that you don't have a huge ego and that um, and that that's part of it, that that, you know, you don't necessarily need to be the front man of the band or the, the project. Never but, have been really. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess more of a uh, enjoy the side being, a, I guess, the, I don't say side man. I, I, I've always found uh, the craft of support and, uh, you know, the value of a team uh, just more fun. I don't know. Yeah, I, just, I like doing it with other people. And like I said, I when I'm mixing, I'm kind of on my own, but it still takes that whole team. I'm still part of the team. It's just when I'm dialed in on the, the very detailed stuff, I need to be kind of isolated in that moment, but, but it still takes, it's, it's, I, it's not my, I'm not driving the ship at that point. I have to get yeah. the feedback on the notes on really where, where they see everything kind of laid out. Same in, with in a way. It's like, in, are, is it fair to say you're in service to somebody else's yeah. vision, whether it's always. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. and you know, on the real estate, uh, I do like that where if you're in a partnership, obviously then you are part of that driving where we're going with this property. How are we, how do we see the, you know, uh, the back end of this? Are we going to sell it? Are we going to hold on to it? So that's nice, that feedback, but it is still fun. You know, you just, you, these things just don't go, you don't see many individuals doing these large deals. It's just not happening. It yeah. Is. Yeah. It's a team, team sport. And with, and with films, you know, people can't make a, it's rare to make a film on your own. So. Yeah. So many people involved. Or now. Um, yeah. And I, I sense that um, I can see that in your studio, the, the audio work um, is, you know, it's kind of head down, isn't it? Headphones on, head down. 
I'm assuming it's a kind of a dark room. Maybe yeah. it is a, <laughs> yes, kind of yeah. a dark room. Ivy, right? yeah, Ivy, yeah. Right. So, um, and then you know, but the real estate, you're you know, you're going to leave the office, so to speak. You're going to get out in the real world. Do you find like doing what you do that that that's a need that you have to sort of get in the into the real world? I love it. Yeah, you know, I'm a people person. I love to network. You know, I love doing these conversations. I, I love new people. I knew, hearing other people's stories. I, I feel like I'm always learning from others. You know, I'm a po- I'm a heavy podcast listener. I love audiobooks. So I'm always trying to learn new things. And I think for me to drive forward in my life and career, I'm just always looking for the next kind of piece that I need. Whether it's on the audio music side, who can I learn from, or the real estate side, who who's doing more than I am that I can learn from or be a mentor to me or a coach to get where yeah. I want to go. You know? So who, who's your, what's your vision um, uh, of the future as a real estate entrepreneur? What would, what would, if you look out five, 10 years, what would you like to see? You know, I'd like to see a portfolio. I'd, I, I would, I'd love to do a fund. The goal is to have a fund where as the um, you know, as the deals kind of continue to, to, to come into the um, syndications continue to happen. I would like to have a fund where I would I would be able to pool money that's there and and that people are wanting to invest and we're looking for larger deals and that that fund of money is ready to go so that we can kind of mm-hmm. once we locate a deal we can get going faster than then each syndication kind of takes time cuz locate a deal then you start raising capital and then you take those you know 90 days or 60 days to to get the capital to that new deal I'm looking forward to maybe a fund that's kind of always being we're always you know raising capital and then we're always sourcing deals and those kind of can get paired up quicker when we find the deals so that mm-hmm. i think just and then just yeah. i love yeah just love to build that continue to build a portfolio and and build uh you know passive income for you know my investors and and hopefully all of us have more time freedom to do the things that we love to do yeah no you know? it's such a it's such an interesting um Pivot. And um, I want to remind everyone you've been listening to The Accelerator with Michael Conniff. We're on all the major platforms um, for podcasts, Audible, Amazon, uh, Apple, etc., plus Spotify for audio and video and YouTube for audio and video. Um, and uh, I, I want to remind you, we've been talking to Brent Barkas. He is the uh, co-founder and uh, investment guru and private equity person at I-65 Capital Investment. Um, he's also, and uh, believe me, he is a world-class audio engineer. And um, because he's worked with Shania Twain, he knows that the best thing about being a woman is the prerogative to have a little fun. But oh, did, yes. Did I get that right? You did. Good job. <laughs> I love it. I, got, I oh. want to tell you just a quick Shania Twain story that has nothing to do with her. But I was at a point uh, in my life where I wasn't able to buy a lot of records or, you know, Things that things were tough, and um, I would go into the Barnes and Noble that had those head, headphone listening. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I was listening. I was actually probably listening to more then than I ever did. <clears throat> and then I had started to get money again. I was like, "What album am I going to buy?" You know, huh. what? What? And I, I really, you know, I really thought hard about it because it had been a while. And I bought Shania Twain. Wow. And I'm not a, you know, I'm not a country music guy, um, really. Um, but that was the one that really spoke to me at that moment. So uh, really interesting. So it's exciting to hear that you were part of that. Yeah, it's a great album. I mean, that's a, again, a, a team of, uh, you know, a lot of Mutt Lang is a genius. And I happen to just be a timing thing to be in his camp and just learn from yeah. him. What producer what Mutt Lang. Mar- marriage yes, and I, Twain, right? They were, they were married for years. Yeah. Not any, yeah. no longer, but that's okay. I mean, they've moved on, but he's just a, 
brilliant yeah. producer. So, and she was just honored. Um, uh, I don't know if it might have been the Grammys, but a big award recently uh, for her whole career. So, yeah. exciting stuff. Well, Brent, thank you so much. I really appreciate your being with us, and I want to remind everybody to keep listening because we'll be back with another podcast before you know it. Thank you for having me.